Thank you, Father, for your good grace to us. Thank you for how you have revealed yourself to us. You've demonstrated yourself in creation. You've shown yourself in our consciences so that we know that you exist. And then, in a very particular way, you have revealed yourself through the Word of God, the Scriptures, and through the Son of God, who is also called the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And here we see your particular plan of redemption. Here we see your particular hope, encouragement, exhortation for living. Here we see all we need for life and godliness. As we have been reminded repeatedly through the years of the sufficiency of the Scriptures, would you remind us of that again this morning? And would you show us particularly particularly what it is like to be a servant of the Word? Would you change us this morning, Father? For all of us need change. There is none of us on this earth who has attained perfection. We all need transformation. We all still wrestle with the flesh, even if we are in Christ. And so would you use this word to shape us and mold us? Might this be a particular day of transformation in our lives? Would this be a day when there be marked change and a new direction for living? Would you guide us in that way from this word? We pray asking for your grace and in the name of the one who grants us grace, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Harry Cole was a private in the British Army who was making his way with the rest of his regiment back to Dunkirk in June of 1940. And while he was on his way to Dunkirk, hoping to get across the British Channel and back to safety, he penned a letter to his mother and to his family. During that retreat, his regiment was overrun by the Germans, and he never made it to Dunkirk. He did not make it across the Channel. He did not make it to England. In fact, he died before he reached Dunkirk. Not only did he die, but his letter was left behind along with a a vast number of other letters that were commandeered by a German soldier and taken back with him after the war to Germany. And he held those letters in his attic for almost 30 years. In 1968, those letters were sent back to Great Britain, but... Many of the people to whom the letters were addressed had died or moved, and they were considered to be undeliverable. And so it was with Harry Cole's letter to his mother, never delivered until a few weeks ago, when two of his siblings were found alive, found where they were living, and the letter that he penned in 1940 was taken to his brother's. Among the things he wrote in the letter was this. Don't worry if you have to wait a long while for a letter or a card sometimes, mother, as we can't always write for days at a time. Also, there is delay in getting it away. I guess you could say 80 years. 
is a slight delay. Aren't you glad that the Lord has not delayed in sending his letters to us? He has sent us his word and showed us exactly what we need in his word. It showed up at the right time and in the right place and in the right way. As I read that story about Harry Cole this week, I thought, what difference would that have made in his mother's life if she had received that letter from him before she died? What difference would it have made in his siblings' lives if they had received that communication from him? How would they have been changed? How would they have been transformed? We might ask the same question about our own lives and our own hearts. How how will we be changed? What 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 benefit will we we reap from what God has written to us in His Word so that we might be transformed? And what we will find this morning as we come to Psalm 119, starting in verse 121, is that we are servants of God. And as God's servants, we are faithful to God's Word. God... God calls us to be His servants, and then in making us His servants, He also calls us to be faithful to that word that He has granted to us. As God's servants, we are called to be faithful to His word. How will we be faithful to that word? Well, the psalmist is going to give us four ways to be faithful to His word. This passage will show us, verses 121 to 128, what it means to be faithful to God, what it means to be faithful to His Word. And we'll start here in verse 121. God's servant seeks God's protection in God's Word. God's servant seeks God's protection in God's Word. The psalmist begins where many of us think about life, and that is, in this world, there will be difficulty. In this world, there will be trial. In this world, there are troubles. That is the promise of Jesus in John chapter 16, right before he goes to the cross. As he speaks to the disciples, he says, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. And that is the testimony of the Apostle Paul. It is the testimony of the Apostle Peter. It is exemplified in, in the lives of men like Job and Daniel and the martyred disciples and all the men who have ever lived, frankly, could testify to the fact that, that there is trouble in this world. In fact, all who have ever lived since Adam can say there is trouble in this world. Do you agree? Okay, so like two of you have had trouble and the rest of you have trouble-free existence. It's trouble-filled life, isn't it? There, there are trials and difficulties in life, but the believer has a particular kind of trial. Notice verse 21, the psalmist asks the second line, Do not leave me to my oppressors. My oppressors. There are, there are people in this world who will exploit others. Often, often they will exploit them because those people they are exploiting have faith in God and faith in Jesus Christ. That word, word oppression 
often refers to financial exploitation, but it can also refer to a political or social oppression. Taking advantage of someone because we have a superior advantage over them and, and they can do nothing to respond to us. We, they, they are held captive to us. They, they have no recourse. They have no ability to fight back. They have no ability to defend themselves because of our position over them. It's an abuse of authority. It's manipulation. It's crushing those who are defenseless. It is not just that they are oppressors, but also notice verse 122. Again, the second line, do not let the arrogant oppress me. Verse 121, oppressors is a noun here in verse 122. It's the verb form, but it's the same word. It's the one who takes advantage of another. And it comes from, notice verse 122, their arrogance. They are presumptuous people. They are overconfident in their position. And they are willing to oppress others, to put others down, because they deem themselves to be superior to them. And this psalm not only emphasizes the reality of suffering, but this psalm, all through the psalm, continually points to various kinds of oppression. Not only is life hard, but people in life are hard. And people, people work against us in life. People harm us. We find this all through the psalm. Consider, for instance, verse 22. Take away my, take away reproach and contempt from me, for I observe your testimonies, even though princes sit and talk against me, your servant meditates on your statutes. So there are princes, people who are in authority, who take advantage of and speak against and work against those who are underneath them. Verse 51. The arrogant utterly deride me. Yet I do not turn aside from your law. 109. My life is continually in my hand. That is, I am about to die virtually, virtually all the time. I live with a sense that, that I could die at any time because of oppressors. Yet I do not forget your law. 110. The wicked have laid a snare for me. Yet I have not gone astray from your precepts. 113, I hate those who are double-minded, but I love your law. So verse 115, depart from me, evildoers. Verse 117, he asks the Lord, uphold me that I may be safe, that I may have regard for your statutes continually. He needs safety because he has people who are oppressing him, who are against him, who are seeking to ensnare him, who are seeking to kill him. It's the difficult people that make difficulties of life particularly hard. Life would be easier if people weren't so troublesome. In this world, there will be difficulty. How does the, how does the psalmist... Okay, I'm having trouble. Here we go. How does the psalmist respond to that suffering of oppression? How does that psalmist respond to oppression... He had few legal possibilities. Now, he could have done things that are illegal. He could have attacked those who were against him and and taken out physical harm against them. He could have perhaps verbally protested against them. Perhaps he could have led some kind of political uprising, all things that sound familiar to us these days. But he doesn't do any of those things when he's oppressed. What does he do? 
I need some help, guys. He lives righteously. Can I get you to just say, next slide, and then you can push it for me? Great. He lives righteously. Notice what he says, verse 121. I have done justice and righteousness. Now, notice what he does not say. He doesn't say, I have done all justice and thereby deserve God's favor. He doesn't say, I've done everything that is right and I have fully fulfilled the law of God. He's not saying, I have merited righteousness on my own. But he is saying, I have treated people justly and I have lived righteously. I have lived as honorably as a man of God can live. He's not claiming perfection. But he is claiming that he is obedient to the Lord and doing things to please the Lord. We think about this in the New Testament, don't we, particularly? Uh, so we saw this a few weeks ago in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, that, that because of what we have in Christ, we should live worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We, we have an ability to live worthy. We have, we have an ability, chapter 5, verse 10 of Ephesians, to, to seek the things that are desirable to the Lord and, and do the things that, that He desires for us to do. The Old Testament saint could live in similar kinds of ways. So consider, for instance, Deuteronomy chapter 10. Let me just read it for you. Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12. Now Israel, Moses says, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and to keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I am commanding you today for your good. What does the Lord require of you? Obey the law. Fulfill the law. And he's in this instance, he's not saying obey it. And by the way, you can't. He is saying the law is given to you to guide you as to how to live. In fact, Paul will say in Galatians chapter three that the law is a tutor to lead us. And there's there's a, a question about how to interpret that, how to how to how to uh, translate it. And I think the best sense is the law is a tutor to lead us. Until Christ. Not to lead us to Christ, but to lead us until Christ. So until Christ comes and fulfills the law, the law shows us how we can live. And, and, and the law, not that we can fulfill it perfectly, for that's another function of the law to say, by the way, you can't do this, you must live by faith, trusting me, but, but when you trust me, you can do things that please God. And the psalmist here says, that's what I've done. I've pleased the Lord. I've done what he's asked me to do. He's not an arrogant oppressor, but he's one who is living in submission to God. He's done what the Lord has asked him. We would say in the New Testament, he's walking as one who is in the light. What's the lesson for us? The lesson is that someone cannot live in rebellion to God and expect God to bless him. The reason that the psalmist can come to him and ask him for help and expect God to answer is that he's living a life 
that is indicative of his faith in God. He's trusting God. He's leaning on God. In the New Testament, we would say he's, he's a believer in Jesus Christ and he's living out his faith. Similarly, the Old Testament saint here is living out his faith. He's trusting in God. And because he's trusting in God, he can expect God to bless him when he asks. Friends, this also suggests that when we're suffering self-examination, is a good response. Am I really living what God has called me to live and do? And can I expect Him to bless me? How does a psalmist respond to suffering in oppression? He lives righteously. Next slide. He trusts God for His protection. He trusts God for His protection. He asks two specific things of God. Notice verse 21, 121. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Do not leave me. He doesn't want to be left behind. He doesn't want to be abandoned. He doesn't want to be left in the hands of the oppressors without God as his defender. He means that that if God doesn't help him, if God doesn't intervene, if God doesn't step in, he is hopeless. He has no other recourse. He is dependent on God. And then he also makes this other request, verse 122, be surety for your servant for good. For God to be a surety for him means that God is a guarantee. It's a financial term that means that God will guarantee his provision. He's asking for God to step in and provide for him. And and that word oppressors is often used in a financial context. And it's interesting that the psalmist here says he is depending on God and uses a financial term to, to express the fact that he needs God to guarantee his life. And, and so perhaps he is particularly being oppressed financially. We don't We don't know for sure. But he is leaning on God and saying, you only are my guarantee. You only are my provision. I need you to protect me. And notice that he not only points to God as being his guarantee, but he also says, be surety for your servant. That is, he is enslaved to God. He is submissive to God. This request is being made from someone who has placed himself under the authority of God. He loves God. He follows God. He obeys God. He delights in God. He is in right relationship to God. And the fact that he is a servant of God, that also means, doesn't it, that God is his master. That also means that God has a responsibility to care for him as a master. And he is going to him and saying, Master, will you fulfill your role of of guaranteeing my safety and guaranteeing my provision? And I trust you. The psalmist has no rights. He has no position. He has no legal appeal. He needs God to act. And he appeals to God to do just that. He trusts God. And he trusts God, notice verse 122, to treat him for good. That is, to be gracious and to be kind to him. From these opening verses, let's draw at least two implications. When you're suffering, when you're being oppressed... 
And I'm still hard-pressed to think of most of us in the United States today as being oppressed. If you travel to other countries in the world, third world countries, um, you will see oppression in very different ways than we have it here. But when you're oppressed, are you more concerned to get justice or are you more concerned to act justly? And to act rightly. Do you want what you deem to be yours? Or do you want to act in a way that is honoring to the Lord, that is right before Him? Even when we are sinned against, our response should reflect our position as followers of God. Even, friends, when we are sinned against, we do not have a right to respond in sin. Even when we are harmed, even when we are oppressed, even when others inflict persecution on us, we do not have a right to respond in ungodly ways. I know that's the temptation of the flesh. I have felt that. But that's never our right. Our right, our privilege, our responsibility is to respond to oppression with righteous conduct. When we are sinned against, our response should be honoring to the Lord, pleasing to Him. Secondly, when you are suffering, are you willing to wait for God to defend and protect you? Do we trust God to protect us? Do we trust God to protect us even if that means a final protection? And by that I mean He allows us to die so He can take us home where no one can ever harm us again. Are you willing to trust Him for that? Are you willing to be content that whatever He gives us is the gracious gift that He deems best for us in that moment. Remember friends. We do, need not, we do not need to survive physically. But we do need to trust God. We don't need to live. We do need to trust. As we have made our way through these opening two verses. Have you also noticed the emphasis on grace? This man is a servant. He is a servant of God. Not by anything he has done. He is a servant of God by God's grace. By grace, he is also living in obedience. He's not doing that on his own. He is doing that because God is enabling him through faith to live in obedience to him. And he is petitioning God's grace. He is seeking God's grace, asking for God's help. Friends, everything he is doing is by God's grace. And that leads us to the second reality The second thing that a servant does, next slide, God's servant longs for God's grace in God's word. God's servant longs for God's grace in God's word. Because a servant was oppressed, he went to God for help, and then he waited. He went to God for help, and he waited. And he waited. And he waited. And God didn't seem to be answering him. And so notice what he says 
in verse 123, my eyes fail with longing for your salvation. If we're going to paraphrase that, we might say it this way. I'm waiting, Lord. Isn't it time? For those of us who are just a tad bit impatient, you get what that's like, don't you? Right? So yesterday, Regine and I are running some errands. And there's a guy in a brand new car. He's just bought the car. And he's being really careful. Doing like 38 in a 55. Being really careful. And there's somebody in the lane next to him that evidently wants to protect the new car because he's doing 39. (laughs) Right. And I'm sitting there thinking, what's... I got places to go. So I, I had to drop off a red box. So I dropped off the red box and, um, you know, put it away, get back in the car. And a mile down the road, I catch up to him again. <laughs> and you know what I said? Seriously. Right? So that whole thing, it was like five minutes of my life. I'm, I'm waiting. That's the psalmist. I'm waiting, Lord. When are you going to answer me? What does he want? Next slide. He has two longings. He has two longings. He's waiting for salvation. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation. Don't, don't think New Testament salvation here. Very often in the Old Testament, that word salvation is used in a physical sense. So remember, he's being oppressed. There's someone who's physically against him. And he's saying, I I, I need you to save my life. That's what he's talking about. And he says, if his life is going to be saved, God is the one who will do it. But he's also waiting for something else. Verse 123, and for your righteous word. He wants the word of God. And specifically, he wants the righteous word of God. He wants, he longs for the right and true declarations of God. He wants God's faithfulness. He wants God's rightness. And and both of these phrases, he's longing for salvation, he's longing for God's righteous word, mean that the psalmist is turning to God alone for help. He looks to God, as one commentator says, because amidst all sorts of dark Excuse me, amidst all sorts of dark circumstances, a flame of real confidence in God's God's word burned within him. He knows in his soul that God's word is enough, and that's what he wants. Will you help me? Notice also this. His eyes are straining. He's been looking. He's been looking. He's been attentive. He's been watching all through the day and all through the night. And his eyes are weary from looking, but he does not stop looking. His heart is inclined to stop. He's weary, but he keeps looking for God's grace. When we are in hardship, what are our longings? Do we want God? Do we want, do we want the salvation, the provision that He provides? Do we want Him in that provision? Do we want God's Word 
to speak into our problems? Do we want God's word to speak into our hearts and dissect our hearts? Or do we just want our problems to go away and life to be easy? You see, the psalmist is being driven through the circumstances to God. And thereby, the difficulties of his life are a blessing to him because they're taking him to God. Notice also, he not only has two longings, next slide, but he makes two requests. And the first request is, verse 124, deal with your servant according to your loving kindness. According to your loving kindness, he is appealing to and asking for God's grace and God's mercy. God's loving kindness is his loyalty to his covenant people, Israel. And it's, it's his love that is exhibited persistently in kindness. It's an unchanging, unchangeable, loyal love that will always be kind towards his people. And he is asking for that. Again, notice the second time he uses this word, your servant. He's appealing as one who is a servant of God. And that, that word servant in the Old Testament, the one that's used here, is used, um, I think, about 800 or 900 times. And it's split almost evenly. Sometimes it means servant, and sometimes it means slave, almost 50-50 the way it's, the way it's used. And either way, though, whether he means here he's a servant of God or the slave of God, he means that he is in submission to God. He, he is acknowledging God's superiority over his life, God's dominance over his life. And it means that he is dependent on God and incapable of doing anything to help himself. Because he is a servant, he can't make a demand. He can't compel God. He can't force God. All he can do is appeal to God and to God's grace. Will you help me? The psalmist is not appealing to his merit because he is, he understands he has no merit. The only appeal he can make is, I'm your servant and I'm dependent. Would you help me? Listen to what Stephen Yule says about this verse. This is a confession of our utter sinfulness and weakness. Often we try to hide what we are in a veneer of respectability. But there are moments when that is hit, when what is hidden comes into view, fits of rage and lust and envy. These moments show us who we really are. Our efforts to compensate with our works, traditions, regulations, and religion simply feed the root of our sin, our self-centeredness, and we are left with only one plea. Deal with your servant according to your mercy. God hasn't promised temporal deliverance from every trial we encounter. He hasn't promised us that we will live above the turmoil of this fallen world. He has promised to guard us from ultimate evil, the loss of Him. And He has promised to sustain us through seasons of lament by reviving our sense of His distinguishing love as revealed in His Word. Oh, friend, when you're in trouble... Have you appealed to him and asked him, you're my only hope. Will you help me? I will do what you say. 
That's one request. The second request is teach me your statutes. Again, verse 124, teach me your statutes. Because he is submitting himself to God as a servant of God, he is asking to be taught by God. And and notice what he specifically wants to know. He wants to know his statutes. God's statutes are his binding requirements on his people. The binding requirements of scripture. These are the things that God literally wrote in stone to denote their unchanging nature. This is what God demands. This is what God says. And he says, that's what I want to know. I want to know the things that are permanent, the things, the things that won't change. I live in a world where everything changes. Where one day what's wrong is right and the next day what is right is wrong. It's constantly changing. I want to know what is permanent, what is a statute, what is binding so that I can follow that. We would also find from this that being taught God's statutes, what God requires is a means of grace and salvation to us. When we know that this is what God says, we also know that's God's provision of care for us. Remember the beginning of this verse, my eyes fail with longing. He's waiting, waiting for God and waiting for grace. And what God provides is not optional for the believer. Waiting is what a believer does. Waiting is not optional because it is not vain to wait. There is always fulfillment in God and His promises. He is faithful, my brothers. And He will always give you what is best. Waiting is not optional because it's not vain to wait. Waiting is not optional because our time is not God's time. J. Adams says about this verse, God's help comes only according to His timetable. He does not always intervene when we ask. He has purpose in delaying. I read that sentence this week and I started thinking about all the people in Scripture who asked and then had to wait. Think about Noah. God says, build a boat. There's going to be some water coming. And he waited. And people mocked. And he waited and waited and waited. And God spoke to Abraham and said, by the way, you're going to have a whole, a whole nation that comes from you. God, I don't have any children. I will provide. And he waited and waited and waited. And Job waited. And Job never got an answer on this earth as to what was going on in heaven, did he? And Moses and Israel waited in the wilderness. And Joseph waited, imprisoned by Potiphar. And Isaiah and Jeremiah waited for repentance. And how many times did the disciples of Jesus have to wait? They're in the bottom, they're, they're in the boat, and the storm is raging on the sea. And where's Jesus? He's asleep in the bottom of the boat. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. And Jesus dies on the cross. And it was only three days. But don't you know that those were the three longest days of their lives. They waited. Life in Christ is often 
a life of waiting because God's timetable is different and it is better. Listen to what Charles Bridges says. Though he delays his promise and holds us as it were in suspense, yet he would have us know that he has not forgotten the word of his righteousness. Whether the Lord deliver us or not, prayer and waiting will not be lost. It is a blessed posture for him to find us in, such as will not fail to ensure his acceptance, even though our request should be denied. Do you long for God? Wait for God and trust God that at the right time he will provide. I I, I was listening. I I listened to a fair number of books on audio. I was going to say cassette. That dates me, doesn't it? (laughs) Um, I listen to a lot of audio books on my phone. That's, that just sounds weird. But anyway, so I listen to a lot of books. Recently, I was listening to a Western, uh, and, um, and sure enough, you know, somebody's in trouble. I don't even remember the exact scenario right now. And somebody's in trouble, and you just know that something is going to happen, and somebody's going to show up. And sure enough, somebody shows up just at the right time to save the hero from dying. And I just... While I was running, listening to the book, I just kind of roll my eyes and go, okay, I like this writer, but seriously, it's just a little too convenient. Friends, when you're waiting for God, it's not trite. It's not a gimmick. He will show up at just the right time with the grace you need. Do not grow weary in looking. The grace you need is the grace he will provide. There is a third way to be faithful to God. Next slide. It's given to us in verses 125 and 126. God's servant learns God's counsel in God's word. God's servant learns God's counsel in God's word. For the third time in this verse, The psalmist affirms that he is God's servant. Verse 125, I am your servant. He is enslaved to God. And here his enslavement leads him to be dependent on God to teach him. Notice what he says, because I'm your servant, he says, give me understanding. He needs to be taught because he doesn't have understanding. That word understanding is a word for discernment. He, he doesn't have an ability to discern between two differing things. And because of that, he says, I need to know your testimonies. Give me, a, give me understanding. Give me discernment so that I may know your testimonies. He's not just asking for discernment in general, but he's asking for the truths that testify, that witness to God and His truth and His righteousness. He's not, he's not picking and choosing what He wants from God's Word. He is willing to submit to all of it. He says, teach me all of it so that I always know how to evaluate right from wrong and respond to you in faithfulness. When the psalmist says he lacks understanding and needs truth, 
It is a way of saying that life is overwhelming to him in his suffering and oppression. He needs counsel. He needs instruction. He needs correction. He needs encouragement. He needs admonishment. He needs to be shown a way, and he knows that the only way he's going to get it is in this word. And friends, that's, that's why we do what we do around here. We just take the book, and we open it, and we say, this is what God says. Because... I don't mean to be critical or anything, but y'all are just as ignorant as I am. We don't know. We don't know. We don't understand. But God does. And He tells us in His Word how to live and where to go and what to do. Whatever our, whatever our need is, God's Word is effective to deal with it. Listen to what one writer says. If we are struggling with discouragement arising from affliction, God's word will strengthen us. If we're struggling with destructive patterns in our thinking and living, it will cause us to forsake our sin. If we are struggling with pride, envy, or bitterness, it will cultivate poverty of spirit within us. If we are struggling to forgive those who've hurt us, it will cause us to weep on their, on their behalf. If we're struggling with a call to deny self, it will make us willing to live for Him. If we're struggling with addiction, it will captivate our heart and satisfy our deepest longing. If we're struggling to resist the world's allure, It will turn our heart away from the world's unholy trinity of pleasure, profit, and power. If we're struggling with laziness and carelessness, it will awaken us from our slumber. If we're struggling to come to grips with numerous uncertainties, it will calm our greatest fears. Well, friends, everything we need to know is in this book. We just need to say, will you teach me? Will you show me? And as you show me, I'll be your servant to do what you say. There is one thing that the, that the psalmist does understand. It's given to us in verse 126. What he understands it is, it is time for the Lord to act. That word act has a sense of intervention. It's time for the Lord to intervene. It's, it's time for God to step in. In what way should God step into life? They have broken your law. Those who are against him, his oppressors, have have broken his law, God's law. And it's time for God to act against them. He may lack understanding, the psalmist, but he knows enough to know when some sin against God. And he knows enough to know that God should and will act against it. In, In breaking the law... They have rendered the law to be useless. They invalidate it. They scoff it. They reject it. And in fact, they're, they're rejecting the very law of God, the Torah, the commandments of God given by Moses. They are lawbreakers and they are lawless and they deserve judgment. And, and he knows that's what they deserve because he's been counseled by the word. He knows where that kind of life will lead someone. And he's asking God in so many words to act. He's trusting God to act against lawlessness. And that reminds us these two verses of four realities. Next slide. We must learn and accept the counsel of God's word. Scripture is opposed to the world's system and the world's values. And we need to let The scriptures shape us and guide us regardless of where that leads us 
And no matter how differently we may appear to be to the world, what guides us is the scripture, not the world. We, we need mind renewal. We also have a responsibility, next slide, to warn unbelievers of the dangers of rejecting God and living lawlessly. lawlessly. I'm, not, I'm not talking, when I say we need to warn unbelievers, I'm not talking about standing on a street corner and preaching. That may be warranted too, but that's not necessarily what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when, when you interact with people day by day, when the people that are in your life consistently live a life against God, we, we need to be able to come up to them and say, friend, I know you think you're okay with God, but God is not okay with you. And the issue is not, what do you think about God? The issue is, what does God think about you? And what you're trusting in and what you're believing in, friend, you need to repent. And we, we need a boldness to say that. We need a boldness to warn people of where ungodly living will take them. Next slide. We can pray for God's unrighteous, excuse me, God's righteous judgment against sin. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? That's essentially what the psalmist is doing. And in fact, the, the, the psalms are consistently full of that theme. It's simply a, a request. God, God, would you be righteous? At the end of time, will you, will you do what is right against sin? If you're following the Bible reading plan, this is what we read this morning. Psalm 79, the psalmist says, Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. And then he will also say, verse 11, Let the groaning of the prisoner come before you according to the greatness of your power. Preserve those who are doomed to die and return to our neighbors sevenfold into their bosom the reproach with which they have reproached you, O Lord. Give them seven times the grief that they have given us in their rejection of you. And and that that is not unique to Psalm 79. That just kind of runs through the Psalms. And friends, it's just a way to say, God, would you be righteous? Would you do what is right? And we trust you that at the right time, you will do what is right. Next slide. We can also rest in contentment that one day God will act. He's not silent. He may be delayed. He may be slower than what we think. But one day he will act. He will be righteous. He will be righteous against all sin and he will prevail. There's a fourth way that the servant learns to be faithful to God in this psalm, verses 127 and 128. Next slide. God's servant loves God's commands in God's word. God's servant loves God's commands in God's word. Next slide. To love God's commands is to love them above anything else. Therefore, he says, I love your commandments. We won't take the time to look at it, but but that theme of loving God's commands is all through this psalm. Specifically, he says those things in verses 47, 48, 97, 113, 119, 140, 159, 163, 165, 167, and a host of others where he implies it. 
He loves God's word. He not only is submissive to God's word, he not only says, I'm a servant to your word, but I love your word. I love your commandments. I love your commandments by which you have authority over me. Now that doesn't sound very American, does it? But it sounds tremendously biblical. I love it when you when you tell me what to do. I love it when you demonstrate your authority over me. How much does he love it? Remember that game you used to play with your kids and your grandkids? Do you know how much I love you? Right? Or how much do I love you? Bigger than the big Texas skies, what we used to always tell the kids. How much does he love it? Verse 127. I love it above gold. Not just gold, but above fine gold, above the purest gold. Give me as many gold bars as you want, and I would not trade for them all if I have to give up this word. This word brings a wealth to me and riches to me that are greater treasure than anything that can be found in this world. The commands are not wearying, they are, they are liberating, they are refreshing, they are hopeful. There is freedom in this word. Oh friends, do you and I love the word in this way? Do we say, do we get up in the morning or do we prepare for night and say, God, just give me, give me one more command for me to fulfill, I love it. When you tell me what to do and where to go and what needs change and what needs transformation. And I love when you tell me how you will do that in me. Do we love God's word in this way? Do we love God's word above all else? Next slide. To love God's commandments is not just to love them above everything else. It is to hate every sin Because he loves God's commandments, 128, I esteem right all your precepts concerning everything. Everything that you have decreed, everything that you have set in place, I always, in every circumstance, love that. I esteem that. That word esteem means to set something straight. And so the psalmist is saying... I align myself to everything that you say is right. He's willing to let God shape the way he thinks about everything in the world. So here's a question. Will the singers of this song and will we allow the scriptures to shape how we think about the world or will we allow the world to shape the way we think about this word. The psalmist says, I'm aligning myself to God and his word. It doesn't matter to me how out of step that is with the world. I'm with God. I'm aligned to him. And that leads him to a very particular statement as he finishes this section. I hate Every false way. Because he loves the word of God, he hates everything that is licentious. 
He hates anything that is in conflict with the revealed truth of God. He hates everything that is not right. He finds no delight in anything that is unrighteous. He hates every false way. He does not allow himself to delight in anything that is evil. He will not be entertained by evil. I wrote that sentence very intentionally. He will not be entertained by evil. There's no room for tolerance of any ungodly desires or activities in his life. This is not to say that there isn't a struggle at times with temptations. Look, to be alive means that there's going to be temptation. How do you know when temptation is stopped? You've stopped breathing. So when we are alive, we will face face temptation. But it is to say that we hate the things that temptation to sin brings. We hate the sin. Listen to what Thomas Manton, the Puritan, said. Till a man hates sin, the soul is not thoroughly resolved against it. Until you hate sin, you will have no resolution to fight against it. He continues, as a man is never thoroughly gained to God till he loves holiness for holiness sake. You can never say, I'm for God, I'm aligned to God until you love holiness for the sake of being holy. Servant of God is one who hates the things that are opposed to God and his submission leads him to love his God's commands and hate everything that is in opposition to God. I found Stephen Yule's chapter on this passage to be particularly helpful. He applies this passage in this way. Listen as I read. Why doesn't God just make our problems go away? We believe that everything would be better if our circumstances were different. Here's a fascinating and very revealing exercise. Complete the following statements. Life will be better when... Life will be easier when... I'll be happy when... How do you finish those? If we complete these sentences with anything but God, we'll never know blessedness, he writes. Why? Because apart from God, the when is always changing. As soon as we reach one thing, we begin to obsess over the next. There's only one person who will ever make us happy, whatever our circumstances. You are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. God is our Lord. We are his servants. By grace, he has made us his servants. By grace, we are in submission to him. By grace, he has given us his word. By grace, we're his servants. Are we faithful to him and this word? Father, we thank you. For the reminder of the sufficiency of your word, the power of the word, the effectiveness of the word, and our responsibility to this word. 
Would you shape us by this word? Would you compel us by this word? Would you transform us by this word? Would you, would you enable us six months from now at the end of this year when we come back to this passage again? Would you enable us to say, by your grace, we really are servants of your word. We love you. We love your commands. We hate every false way. We pray asking this independence on Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.